WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Yesterday was Thanksgiving, a time to celebrate family, community, and heritage throughout the country. And as all Louisianans know, our state is a hodgepodge of different cultures, which has led to multiple languages that are spoken throughout the area. In Louisiana, there are nearly 200 interpreters registered to translate a total of 22 languages. They do important work in the legal service, helping clients navigate the complicated legal gauntlet despite limited English-speaking abilities. One of those interpreters is Louisiana native and polyglot Kip Britton. In June, we spoke with him about how he learned so many different languages and how he gives back to his community with translation services. Today, we encore that conversation. Kip, can you just start by telling me how many languages you speak? Which ones do you speak fluently? Which ones do you dabble in? And what languages are they? <laughs> okay, so um, officially I work in four languages. I work in English, French, Spanish, and Italian. I can manage myself rather well in Portuguese and in German. I've studied Arabic and Chinese. I've picked up some Malay, Japanese, Thai, Tagalog, Hindi, Persian. Um, and when I was a little kid, I used to speak a tiny bit of Kiswahili because my sister was in Africa at the time, but I, I don't count that anymore. That, that's so incredible. You said a little Malay? Yep. Well, I used to live Sidi, in Malaysia. Sidiket. Oh, yeah. Well, salamat pagi. <laughs> salamat pagi. Just how did you learn so many languages? I, I know you're... Your family background is one that's incredibly culturally diverse. So how did that play into your language learning and your your thirst for all of this? My language talent I inherited from both sides, but especially from my mother's side. Um, there are a lot of multilingual people in my mother's family. My mother was a Sterling by blood. The Sterlings were the family that owned the Myrtles, the most haunted house in America in San Francisville. They also own seven other plantations, among which um, Wakefield, just north of St. Francisville, which is where my great-great-grandparents lived and my great-grandparents were born. The Sterlings had also intermarried with the Turnbulls of Rosedown. The Turnbull children were reared multilingually. They learned six languages at home. Which languages? English, French, Spanish, Italian, Latin, and Greek. Wow. And so they had a governess to teach them each of the six. They also lived in a household where the slaves were literate. Wow. So by hook and by crook, I think that the propensity for languages in my family probably has a lot to do with that and with our most direct African ancestor, who was very likely a Fulani or a Berber who conquered areas in sub-Saharan Africa during his time, and whose son, Barika, was either sold or captured and brought into slavery to San Francisville through New Orleans, but who did not give up his name. Mm. Hence, we know his name, Barika, which wow. in Arabic means successful. How do you keep it up? Like, how do you retain your knowledge of these languages? I mean, you learned Malay on a plane. So yeah. how long does it take? <laughs> well, Malay isn't that hard. It's, um, it's true. There aren't really tenses. But, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, how do you, how are you able to practice? How do you keep it up? Well, work helps. 
so I work in more than one language, and that, that helps. The more I work, the easier it is to practice. My house is a multilingual house because my dogs were trained in Italian. My ex is Italian. My ex-in-laws are Italian. And so the dog that I had with my ex spoke Italian and English. As a result, I speak to all dogs in Italian, no matter what they are, because it's, it's become reflex. Wow. And you also did some time in, in Washington, D.C.? I, I went to Georgetown University School of Languages and Linguistics, and that helped a lot. That was where I studied Arabic, for example. But it's also where I developed an academic approach that has really helped me a lot. Um, you ask, how do I keep them straight? My head is like a filing cabinet. But the way I approach it, see this thing? I'm, for those of you who are not in the studio, I'm holding up a pair of glasses. You see this thing? Yes. This thing is not a pair of glasses. It's a thing that does this. And I should say that you're putting the glasses on your face so you can see. So understanding that this thing is a thing that does this releases you from the constraint of the code word glasses. One of the things I love about languages is that they all offer us a different lens on the world, right? You Absolutely. Know, I remember speaking with a woman who had revitalized the Wampanoag language in Massachusetts. Mm. Her name was mm -hmm. Jessie Little Doe Baird. And she told me that her favorite thing about the language is that it just gives you a different view of the world because, especially in this language, there were no gender distinctions. The only distinctions were between the living and the non-living. So right. you see the world in, in that way. So what are some kind of new ways that these languages have helped you just see the world differently? So Chinese is a great example because to learn Chinese and to function in Chinese a Western language speaker of any sort has to absolutely abandon the way you look at the world. Because in Chinese in particular, you look at the world in terms of its categories. Everything has a counting word, and that counting word corresponds to the type of thing it is. Shoes, which come in pairs, are shuang because they are a pair of things. Zhi um, is something that is always straight. Uh, is the counting word used for things like stuff, any old stuff. So if you're just talking, talking, yiga, blah, 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 erga, um, blah, 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 one of these, two of these things. But the minute you identify the thing, you really should change the counting word to match the category of thing. Wow. That forces you to think about all the things that you talk about in terms of their form yeah. and their function. There's a lot you can do when you speak multiple languages. You can translate books, movies, TV shows. How did you fall into this role of interpreting for the court system specifically? I lived in Italy for about three years where I worked for a translation service. When I went back, my very, 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 very close friend and confidant, Amy Moore, said to me, you should try to be a UN interpreter. And I thought, man. I can't do that. It's too hard. This is not something I can do. And she's like, yes, you can. So I took the test and I, they accredited me. And right after that, there was a convocation for indigenous peoples. The center provides them their translation needs, their interpreter needs, helps them do all the things that they need to do because they are quite often countryless. So they need their own representation, yet they aren't nations. So that in-between space, DOSIP helps them 
um, navigate. And I was a part of that. So then you get pulled. Oh, you speak a little Malay. The, the Malay delegation is going into this room and they really need someone. You're not fluent, but you could help go in there. That's how I ended up meeting the king of Papua New Guinea. I met the Choctaw delegate from Mississippi. My mother's family is Choctaw. I met him one day, just out of the blue, because I was doing this, right? Yeah. From that, I started doing it for the courts in New York. When I came back to Louisiana, I then registered for the Supreme Courts here, and one thing led to another. There we go. Well, what are some of the skills that go into interpreting in the legal system that go beyond just knowledge of two languages? An interpreter always has three things going on all the time. The language that's going in, the language that's going out, and the head in the middle that has to process it all at the same time. So keeping all those things straight while also understanding legal concepts and being able to interpret them, even if you don't necessarily understand them, right? Mm. To, to be able to interpret a word whose meaning may or may not be readily available to you. The other side of that, though, uh, those other skills are interpersonal. Um, it's knowing when a person doesn't understand. It's being able to see when a person's really scared or really concerned or really confused. And as an interpreter, often my job is to take that complicated word and break it down into 10 words that this person will understand and then pop back to the legalese for the next part. And so while remaining true to your job, you can also give your interpretation in a way that helps him or her know what's going on. Absolutely. Well, in Louisiana, the Supreme Court does have an official language access program. So what can you tell us about that program and what rights clients have when it comes to getting an interpreter? And are those rights always met? So what I can tell you is that I know that there's an interpreter program in the, in the state. I know that that program is growing. Those are the constitutional rights that a defendant has in the state. Are they always met? I think in my experience, the courts are trying really, really hard to do that. I don't think they did before. I don't know that they appreciated the need to do so before. I don't know for sure, but I have the sense that the nature of court cases and the volume of court cases has changed over the past few years, such that the court system has had to reckon with a much larger number of non-English speaking defendants. Are there any specific moments that you can point to throughout your career as an interpreter that just have really stuck with you? Moments maybe when you were able to bring a sense of comfort or understanding to a family. Yes. So I once had a woman who was applying for asylum from the Cameroon. And she was a political refugee. She had fled. Um, her flight took her through like three countries to get here. Um, she'd been through a lot. She had successfully brought over one of her children and... She was really, really trying hard to make it. And it was her asylum hearing. And she was super, super nervous because she did not think, she wasn't sure that she would be approved. And I think the simple fact that the person who was interpreting for her, the fact that I'm not white, made a huge difference for her because she was not, as she had been, I think, up till then perhaps, in a system where there wasn't a familiar face, where there wasn't someone who she felt could understand her. Yeah. And while 
we don't look exactly alike. I'm a hell of a lot closer to the people she's used to than the folks who were deciding her fate. Yeah. So she relaxed because she knew that I could understand her. And that if I couldn't understand her, she could make me understand her. And she did. And she got her asylum. And it worked out beautifully. Wow. Um, the biggest case I've ever had was a murder trial that I did very recently. Um, probably the hardest thing I ever did. And the sense of comfort there was ongoing, and but it was disquieting, right? Comfort because I'm here, and if you have questions, I can answer them, and I'm giving you a, a, bold by, a blow by blow uh, interpretation, chuchotage, which is when you whisper in someone's ear. Um, of, of the important stuff, I'm answering your questions, I'm here to guide you, but you're here because a member of your family was murdered, and that's what's on your mind. So every so often, as the interpreter, my job was just to hold her hand. Yeah, I can't even imagine. You know, as we mentioned in Louisiana, we have just under 200 interpreters, but that is continuing to grow. Absolutely. And actually, the first Ukrainian interpreter was recently added, which is Fantastic. exciting. Uh, why do you think it's important to continue to grow our list of interpreters? And what can the language access program do to ensure that we will always have interpreters for those who need them? Diversification is the way of the world. Our population is not going to homogenize. Um, time will continue to accelerate. People will continue to grow closer and closer and closer together. And that that the diversity of those people will continue to increase as it is right now in Louisiana. So it's super important that Louisiana get a, get that program really up to speed and keep it up to speed to match the changing demographics of the state. It's also important because Louisiana, like many southern states, but Louisiana in particular, has a history of inequality in the application of law. That history of inequality skews to the disfavor of people of color, skews to the disfavor of immigrants, skews to the disfavor of the non-white, the non-male, and the non-wealthy. Most of my clients fit into that category. And it's vitally important not just for them, but for the spirit of justice, that the system reform itself in ways that mitigate those vestiges of Jim Crow, with which we live every day here, especially here in the world. Yeah, and speaking of Jim Crow era laws, as you mentioned, in Louisiana, it was only recently that we went away with allowing non-unanimous juries to convict people of capital offenses. So, Correct. Uh, with that going on, how is that going to affect your job and what you do? Well, like I said, um, I think for a lot of my defendants, probably the, the first good thing when I walk in is, oh, God, someone that looks a little like me, someone who I can relate to, right? But also someone who will understand when I say, I think the system is being unfair to me because I'm because I don't speak English because I'm not white because I'm poor and I'm not going to shy away from that interpretation I'm it's my job to transfer the tone and the word of whomever's speaking to me so if what you need to say is I think the system is doing me wrong it's easier to say that through me 
Kit Britton, a polyglot and interpreter for the Louisiana court system. Thank you so much for being here today. Merci beaucoup. Gracias. Muito obrigado. Grazie. Shukran. Matur suksmo. Sie sie. Teşekkür ederim. Hopkun kap. Daniela. Terima kasi. Sama sama. <laughs> sama sama. And, th and thank you. My grandma and your grandma were sitting by the fire. My grandma told your grandma, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. Talking about hey now, hey now, hey now. I go, I one day. Jagamo fino, anane. Jagamo fina, ne. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. I bet you five dollars he'll kill you dead. Jagamo fina ne. Talking about henna, henna, henna. I go, I go one day. Jagamo fina one day. Jagamo fina ne. My flag boy and your flag boy sitting by the fire. My flag boy to your flag boy, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. Talking about henna. Of course, Thanksgiving would have been nothing without fresh produce. It's thanks to the local farmers that we have pumpkins, squash, corn, and all the fixins for this harvest holiday. But many farmers in the South are struggling to pass on their businesses to their children and grandchildren. Back in June, the Gulf States newsroom's Danny MacArthur reported on efforts to cultivate a new generation of black farmers in Mississippi. Today, we give that story a second listen. It has smoking, it has power, lights, everything to it. Alonzo Miller is showing me around his farm in Louisville, Mississippi. Right now, we're in the walk-in cooler he built to preserve food. This farm has pretty much everything that you need to provide food for yourself. Uh, water. There are cows, vegetables, and fruit trees. But Miller is scaling back. He'll be 70 soon, and all that land is too much to handle. He's keeping a smaller parcel and plans to sell the rest. Miller is a fourth-generation farmer. His family taught him how to preserve the soil and provide the land whatever it needs to be self-sustaining. He wants to pass on this knowledge, but he worries that it will end with him. His children aren't farmers. And that... For us older farmers to not have our sons and daughters involved in that, it's a hurting thing. Black farmers in Mississippi, like Miller, are an aging demographic. And they have all of this ancestral knowledge that could help the next generation figure out how to keep growing as the climate changes. These older farmers, they're basically libraries. They teach us how it used to be here how people used to live in community. And that's what we're trying to build. That's Teresa Irving Springs. Her farm is about six miles away from Miller's home. She and her husband are actively working to bridge that gap between elderly farmers and the next generation. On Juneteenth, they welcomed family, friends, and supporters to their farm in McCool, Mississippi. She took my frog! It's my frog now! It's not your frog! 
They're in the early stages of opening a training center that will pass on sustainable practices from older black farmers to younger ones. A lot of times I apologize to young people because I think we're leaving them a wounded world. Urban Springs says she realized the importance of passing down this ancestral knowledge of sustainable farming through her own experience. The Springs were new farmers when they started several years ago. Miller and the local farming cooperative guided them. But Urban Springs says she noticed that she and her husband were among the youngest in that group. We thought to ourselves, if we're the youngest, you know, and we're in our 50s, well, we're going to be in trouble if we don't harness or get this knowledge so we can pass it on. According to a survey from the National Young Farmers Coalition, the vast majority of young farmers are first-generation producers. That means they don't have older family members to guide them. These are mostly people like me who um, didn't grow up in a farming family. That's Carolina Mueller. She works for the National Young Farmers Coalition. Don't have access to land necessarily and having to start from scratch. She says there are two big problems happening here. One, young farmers are having a hard time finding affordable land. And two, Mueller says as older farmers in the U.S. retire, a lot of land is going to be available soon. So there's a disconnect between folks who are retiring and the folks who are trying to get into it. Yeah. Mueller says the coalition wants to bridge that gap and remove the barriers that keep some new farmers out of the field. Doing some fishing earlier. Markel Thompson is one of those new farmers who is reconnecting with agriculture. Is there a pond nearby? Uh, yeah, there's one down there. And he's leaning on people like Miller and Urban Springs for help. Me being young, it re-energizes the elder because they're like, oh, young man, you know, we have somebody to pass down this knowledge to. Thompson oversees his family's farm in McCool, Mississippi. He didn't grow up farming. In fact, this will be his first year. But his grandfather was born here. He left, though, and moved to Chicago had my mother, and I was just raised in the inner city. Thompson's interest in farming sparked years ago. First, he tried growing things in pots in his apartment. Then he tried out a community garden, but it wasn't enough. Something was telling him to go to the family farm. It was just like a faint whisper, like, hey, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. And my grandfather ended up calling me in the hospital. Said, Markel, I need you to come home, I'm sick. Caring for his grandfather made Thompson want to grow organic food and help his elders. Now, he's preparing his first pasture for planting. He's excited for it. He oversees more than 100 acres. Often, he'll spend hours just exploring. It's partly fun, but also practical. I was back there searching for a well that's supposed to be just open somewhere. I need to find that before I fall in there. That would be terrible. <laughs> Thompson just bought the building that will be his future home. He's going to live at the top of the hill looking out over his new farm. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, polyglot and interpreter for the Louisiana court system, Kip Britton, and a special thanks to the Gulf States Newsroom's Danny MacArthur. 
Our producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.